Welcome to the Sunday Tennis Q&A with high performance coach Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally respected author and educator and is regarded as one of the leading junior development coaches in the world. Join Chris weekly for the most intelligent tennis talk show on the planet as Chris answers questions from his audience around the world. And now, here's Chris. Hey guys, it's Chris. We're live. Another Sunday night episode of my talk show. How's everyone doing? I'm here with my co-host, Sammy. Sammy, you want to say hello? Say hi, boy. How you doing? Give me snuggles after a long day. How are you? Yeah, you had a good day? This guy's a cutie. You have anything to say? Look at that face. Look at that face. All right, it's me. I'm back. Okay. Guys, what a, what a day it was. What a weekend. Long weekend of coaching on the court. Man, it was a grind. It was really tough. But now I made it. I made it to the end. I'm happy to be with you guys. Wait a minute. Is that Sergi Stein, Hannah Stein's brother? What's up, Ser Sergi? How are you? Thanks for tuning in. I see Larry Klein is watching. We'll wait for all the friends to join the show. I've got all of my Sunday night buddies who tune in and we have the intelligent tennis talk. And I try to answer all your questions on this program. If you have questions about junior tennis or questions about technique, those are two of my favorite topics. If you have any questions about anything anything re relating to tennis, I don't know if I have the answers for other things like things about life or personal problems, but I can probably help you with your tennis problems. That's something I'm pretty good at. Especially technique, if anyone would like to talk Spanish tennis, that's one of my favorite subjects. I wrote a book called The Secrets of Spanish Tennis, and I also wrote a book called The Tennis Technique Bible. So those are two of my favorite subjects, Spanish tennis, European tennis training in general, and technique. I love technique. I'm a hardware guy, and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately how there are some coaches who are hardware guys and some who are software guys and where do I fit in? I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that, but you know, there's definitely some coaches who focus on the hardware side, the technical side, and some who focus on more on the software. But I'm wondering if my feed is working because sometimes my feed cuts out. Can somebody send me a wave or a shout out because I want to make sure that my comments are working and I don't think they are. I think they've timed out. So I'm going to have to start up this feed again. Oh no. I hate when that happens. All right, guys, I'm going to have to start up this feed again. Wait, no, it's working. Yes. Oh, I thought I lost you guys. Scott Growth is waving. Thank you for tuning in, Scott. I thought that I had lost my feed because I'm always having technical difficulties on this program. I think I have to get a new iPhone, guys. What do you think? I still got the iPhone 6 here. That's kind of sad, isn't it? All right, so I have a lot of tennis stuff on my mind from the weekend of working. Guys, feel free to send 
any of your questions or comments out and I will try to answer best I can. Let's see, what's first on my mind? I've been thinking a lot about junior development and what is the best way to build technique, for example. And I know a lot of coaches, they believe in building the drive. You know, they believe in building the, the Lansdorp drive early on. And so that, that's something I've been contemplating a lot. Is that the correct way or is there a way to develop spin and RPM at a young age along with the drive? And I think that's kind of how I do it. I like to develop the spin very early on. And then I like to go to a spin drive, like a combo deal. And then when I see a good spin drive, I like to get that, that powered drive. I guess that's what Lanzor kind of does. But I guess I do it kind of in, in, in reverse or a little different than some do. I know I'm doing it different than some. So I was working on that tonight with a young boy under, under 12. No, he was 10 years old. And, you know, I wanted him to drive the ball, but with a good RPM. And I, that, that's kind of a big debate that I see a lot in junior coaching is what do we teach the young children? Do we teach them a drive, like flat, or do we teach young kids spin? You know, so that is a big question. Thank you guys for tuning in. I see I've got some new friends on the program. Joey Lavulo is watching. Joey, that's my Facebook buddy. Sorry we're debating so much, Joey. I, I respect your opinion, but... I, I guess we, we see it a little bit differently, but I really appreciate you sharing all your comments on Facebook. That's cool, man. Thank you. Appreciate that. I think I said your name wrong. Lovulo. Lovulo? Lovulo? Sorry, man. I'll try to get that right, but we're having a good debate on Facebook, don't you think? One of the debates we were having was whether we should teach like a solid foundation of I'm sorry, Joe, I'm going to say old school or, or classical technique, like follow through a little higher, drive through the ball. That's kind of what we're getting at with the Lansdorp drive that I was just talking about. Should we teach that base of technique to young kids or should we teach them something a little more? I'm sorry, Joe, I'm going to say innovative or a cutting edge or a bit more modern. And what Joey was arguing on Facebook, he was saying how you want to get that base, you know, that technical base sort of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, Joey. Maybe, maybe you want to post a, a comment, Joey, and, I'll, and I'll, run with, I'll run with an answer or we can debate it. But, you know, you get that solid drive going with a kind of a higher finish, like follow through to the shoulder kind of deal and good extension, probably stepping in the ball, right, Joey? Probably stepping in the ball too. And then off of that, you can sort of, you see a lot of innovation from the players. But what I'm sort of saying is I want to skip that. I want to skip that stage and I want to get sort of a hybrid, like some of those fundamentals from the past. I'm sorry, I'm going to call it from the past. Some of those classic fundamentals along with more modern flavor. And... I'm doing that. I'm doing that right now with, with a, lot of, a lot of good players. I have a good track record doing it. So I, I think I'm on to something. I'd like to know if I'm right or wrong or 
way off. Uh, you know, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if what I'm doing is 100% perfect, if it's going to work for my players down the road. I, I believe it is. I see it working. And, and I, I think it's going to be a new way that we can teach technique to young kids eventually. And I, I know some of, the, some of the guys who I've been, some of my supporters are also seeing some of that technique and they're, they're, they're trying it back home and it's working for them too, like sort of the system, the method. So did I lose my feed here again, guys? I feel like my comment section is not updating. Fabian Rivetta is watching. Mark Hansen is watching. Thanks for waving. Charlamsri Kaiwenguam. I cannot pronounce that. I'm so sorry. Thanks for waving. I want to check my feed here. Oh, no. This is happening too much. Hold on a moment. Got here. Let's see. Did I get a better connection? Yes. Maybe. Can somebody post me a comment or a wave or something and let's see if I, my connection is a little better here i hope it's working but guys let me know what you think about that did anybody see tiafo or tiafo as i've always called him then one of my students said no it's tiafo but i've been watching a little bit of the ao and i think tiafo is He's always been my pick for the American next-gen player who's going to break through. And I think we're seeing some of that at the Australian right now. He made the quarters. He beat Dimitrov. And I've always liked his game. Has anyone noticed, you know, I'm a technical guy. I'm a hardware guy. So has anyone kind of noticed his serve technique where he has kind of a has kind of a, sometimes it's called a cobra style wind up on the serve in the beginning as he goes up into the trophy position. It's kind of cool. I don't know if I, I will teach it. I, I don't teach it yet. I know some coaches really like it where you have sort of the hand down like this and then there's some research that argues that it helps get more acceleration down into the back scratch. And I don't know if it's good research. Maybe it's an opinion piece. I, I don't know if there's been hard sports science on that, but it's kind of an interesting trend. You see TFO does it. There's a few other guys who are doing it. It's compared, you can contrast it with, say, Federer, who has more of like a classic, you know, the arm position is straight up instead of instead of like that. So there's, there's this idea that holding the racket and the hand like this, you can accelerate it down into the drop and it will increase racket speed. So there's kind of a theory, a sports science theory about that, technical theory about that. I, I don't know if that's the case, but I'm, I, I find that kind of in- interesting. One thing about Tiafo is I've, I've hung out with him and watched his training down at USDA for the last couple years I've had a chance to watch I actually I had a chance to watch him in Orlando at Lake Nona and I also watched him train at Jose Higueras's ranch in Palm Springs and I've just ever since I watched him since he was uh, I guess a younger an older teenager I was really impressed with his game 
And more, more than just his athletic ability, he's a, a tremendous athlete. Like, if you watch, watch him up close, I got the chance to watch him train for a couple weeks in different locations with USDA. And I, I was really impressed with the way he runs. He, he's, he's a beast. He's a machine with his legs. And even more than that, I was impressed with his attitude, the way he practices. He's a very hard worker, but he's also chill. He's got a great personality, great sense of humor. And I just love the way he embraced life and training. And, and I think if, if all, I wrote an article, a short article about it after I came back from one of those study trips. And I, I, I sent it out to all my families and my students. And I said, if you, could, if you guys could have the attitude of Tiafo where you train like a beast, but you, you have a good sense of humor, you smile, you, you enjoy life and training, and you appreciate what you have. And I just thought that was a beautiful combination. And, and so I, I, I'm kind of rooting for him because I like his personality. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know him personally. Well, like we're not friends, but I, I've spent time with him on the practice court, observing his training up close. And so I just feel that connection, and I'm really happy to see that he's doing so well. Made the quarters pretty good for American men. And we have a bunch of women in the draw, too. Scott Groth, is it Groth or Groth? Scott Groth, I'm going to say Groth. Says, big foe is a stud. Is that TFO? Yeah, Tiafo. Is it Tiafo or TFO? I keep getting it mixed up. How about Tsitsipas? Why don't you break down his backhand for us? Thanks, Scott. Thanks for asking. He's got a beautiful flowing backhand, Tsitsipas. I, I'm interested. I need to check out his slow-mo because I'm interested in what grip he's using. It looks like a strong Eastern. And I have this theory that the, the one-handed backhand grip is going to go more extreme Eastern and more almost semi-Western to handle high-bouncing balls. But... You see guys like Team. Like, I don't really like Team's backhand. I, th I like Tsitsipas' backhand better. From what I've seen of it, it looks a little more Eastern, and it's so flowing and elastic. You know, sometimes on the Facebook groups, I, I talk a lot about elasticity, and I think that's a good example there. He's got great elasticity and pretty much picture-perfect form. I don't know if I'm going to break it down more than that. But I, I do want to check out his grip structure. That's sort of the trend that I'm interested in with, with the modern one-handed backhand. I'm interested in the grip structures. And I'm interested to see if we can observe a trend where the grip structures are going more extreme. More to the eastern. More closed, basically. And more to the semi-western. And I think the reason is because you got to play heavy. you got to be able to play really heavy. And you want to be able to handle heavy topspin balls that are coming at you. So with the one-handed backhand, I think that's the big liability. Players like to attack the one-hander with a heavy ball. And that grip, like a more strong, extreme grip, helps to mitigate that. Helps to defend or protect against or deal with heavy balls. Also... Another thing that I've been working on a lot with my students is there's, there's, there's one grip. If you hold a semi-Western forehand and you flip it around, you can basically hold the same grip for a semi-Western or extreme 
Eastern one-handed backhand. And I find that fascinating, and I think it's a very good grip structure. I have a, a few of my young players doing that grip structure right now. I first learned it from a friend of mine who was an Argentinian pro, really good player on the ATP level, and I was practicing with him, and I was like, dude, what, what grip structure do you use? Because it, it looked like he was pretty extreme on the backhand side, the one-hander, and he's way over there semi-Western, and then he told me that he doesn't change it. And I was like, wow, he has no grip change. He can just sort of flip it around like a windshield wiper and hit with the same side of the racket. And you know, he was an amazing player, very talented player. And we were practicing a bunch one summer, and it just sort of rubbed off of me. I was like, you know, I'm going to try this for myself. I've been working on it in my own game. And I taught it to a few of my students, and they love it. So I know it sounds kind of crazy, but it's not crazy. It's, it's innovative. It's interesting. And it really helps with the, with the return of serve because that's another thing where you hear like Jeff Salzenstein talking about this a lot where the one-hander has that liability on the return. If the ball's coming really fast, you want to have the two hands for more stability. And I think there's some credence to that argument. And when you have the one-hander with the grip structure that I talked about, it can be very helpful on the return because you have the grips already there. You don't have to change it. It's built in for the for the return of serve. So there's sort of a uh, built-in advantage there as well. But what do you guys think about the one-hander? Is it going to go? I see my buddy Brandon's watching. Brandon, what do you think, man? Is the one-hander going to fade away? You know, sometimes when I'm moving out wide and I step in the way a normal one-hander does, like a cross, I cross up my legs and my body, it's just so wrong, isn't it? I, it should be open stance. It's not efficient. I can't believe, on some level, I can't believe that technically we see guys still closing off their stance on a wide ball and hitting the one-handed backhand. The other thing that I don't like about the one-hander is the big loop. You know, the take-back is so big compared to a modern two-handed backhand. When you see an ATP two-handed backhand, like, just a guy like Robbie Ginepri comes to mind, or Agassi, or anyone, you know, any... Djokovic, Murray, when you see those backhands, they're so compact, they're so money, and they can generate the same pace as a, as a one-hander with a much smaller take back, you know, a much smaller window of operation, like right in the slot, and I don't know how that, I can't believe everyone's not doing that. Or I can't believe everyone's not hitting two forehands. That's the other thing. I, I really think that there should be more players playing ambi-style two forehands, you know, two modern, semi-Western, more or less forehands, rather than the two-handed backhand at all. But when I go out wide and I step across my body and I close off my hips to hit a one-hander, I'm thinking to myself, man, I wish I had a two-hander right now. I could just take this open, you know, the way Novak does it. Or, But nevertheless, you, you, still, see, you still see great one-handers. You still see guys doing it, even in the next gen. So that tells you something, right? Even though biomechanically it, it's not as good, is it? You still see players doing it, and that's that's because I think the the, the brain wiring. There's always going to be some players who are more, I want to say, dominant. Like they're they're not able to coordinate both arms as well, and they're always going to be like right arm dominant for a right hander. 
and play, and want to play with one. There's just the way it's the, like the way the brain is wired for some just for some some percentage of players. I, I don't know how many. Not not that many. I don't think it's going to be that many. Like, will we ever see a time where the one-handers more popular than two? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think I'll ever see that again. Will that ever come back? I don't, I don't think so because I think it's more of a it's like a relic that that's hanging around just because of brain wiring, brain and nervous system connections and and the the intricacies of laterality. Laterality is like the study of coordination of the body, the study of the scientific study of like hand preference, dominance, basically. Eye, eye dominance, hand dominance, foot dominance. That's the study of laterality, the sports science study of laterality. And I just think there's some nuance of laterality that that causes some players to, to want to free up the swing and, and play one-handed. And it's, I just think there's probably always going to be players like that. So my buddy Brandon, who's a very smart coach, we always have smart people on this program, guys. This is the intelligent coach and tennis player talk show. Brandon says, if my comments are working correctly, the one-hander is here to stay. I'm sure team and Shapovalov's success will keep it alive. Are you sure, Brandon? I mean, is yeah, that's kind of the common sentiment. Is that is that always the way it's going to be, guys? See, my buddy Nicholas Wagner is watching. What's up, Nick? Chime in, Nick. You're one of those intelligent coaches. This is the High IQ Coaches Talk Show. My buddy Pablo Numbella is watching. What's up, guys? Just chilling. Sunday night. I'm really glad I don't have to work on the ambulance tomorrow. I'm, I'm beat. It was a long grind this weekend, like 24 hours. Man, there's a lot of work this weekend. And I was hitting with all my students. That's crazy. Good thing I have a new assistant coming in because that's, that's I've been doing a lot too much hitting, man. My arm's sore. That's a lot of work. I'm grinding. All right, Tahir Khan Khalil is watching. Thanks for waving, guys. John Penaloza is watching. We got some new friends on the program tonight. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Maybe it's the holiday program. That's why people are out. Are people going away on holiday this weekend? You know, we weren't supposed to have the show this weekend. But my big workshop in Vermont got canceled. I had like eight to ten coaches and parents coming to my workshop on advanced Spanish exercises. I was so bummed. It was going to be such an awesome workshop. And I had, all, I had a bunch of players coming up, you know, players who were going to demonstrate for the coach. Coaches were going to be able to work with them. And we were going to go through all these esoteric Spanish drills that I haven't really published before. It was going to be such an awesome workshop. And... Boom, we had a huge snowstorm, huge snowstorm in Vermont. All the roads are jammed, shut down, and there's no way we, anyone was going to be able to get up there. I had a family coming in from Chicago. Nice dad with his little prodigy kid. We were going to do it, and I had to cancel the whole thing. I'll have to reschedule. Guys, let's get into this one-hand versus two-hand debate. I have players with one hand, and I have a lot of two-handers, and I just... If you just look at it from the biomechanics, right? The two-hander's better, right? Agree or disagree? The two-hander's better, right? Because it's smaller, it's more compact, and it has more stability. 
like for returning serve and the, the compact back I can't I can't get around that. I'm sorry. When you have when you can keep the backswing that small, it helps you take the ball on the rise, it helps you control court position better. I just can't believe Oh, and you can do the open stance. It's really good for open stance. You can do one-hand open stance, but the two-hander's kind of built for that open stance. And I just think those advantages are why you see so many two-handers now on tour at the top level. And how is the one-hander staying around? Despite its biomechanical inefficiencies, it's staying around because of some intricacy, some nuance of laterality, where there's some, some element of hand, eye, dominance, something going on in the brain and nervous system that there are certain players who just love the feel of that one hand and they can't get the arms to coordinate very well. Oh, that's my take on it. What do you guys think? Man, I had a lot of stuff on my mind tonight. Do I want to say some stuff that's pissing me off or... No. Guys, here's something that's on my mind. Okay. I'm a hardware coach. I, I don't want to say I'm only a hardware coach, but I'm really a hardware coach. You know what I'm saying when I say that? Hardware. I want to be known as the guy who's doing the strokes, the guy who's building the technique. You know, that get back to that. Nicholas Wagner's chiming in. Nick, where you been, man? Nick, I got a new assistant coming in. It's exciting. Nick says, smart coach. The one-hander is here to stay. With the power that players like team are generating, it will remain an in-demand shot, especially as these players retire and open up academies and continue to teach it. Yeah, you guys are probably right. You know, you're convincing me it's going to be here. It's going to be here in 20 years. What about 50 years? What about 100 years? Sammy, what do you think? Oh, come on, I'm going in for a hug. I'm going in. I'm going in for Oh, tummy rub time. Getting the tummy rub. Look at that. Look at that face. Look at that face. Oh, Sam boy. <laughs> I went in for the tummy rub. Let me tell you, Sammy is a sucker for tummy rubs. All right, so Nick says, it's going to be here to stay, the one-hander. But what? It's generating power? Like what? You can't generate the same power with a two-hander? You know? <laughs> yes, Nick. The new assistant is going to have to put sunblock on Sammy. That's because Sammy gets a sunburn in the summertime. Oh, Sam boy, you want love? You want to snuggle? You want to come in for a snug? Yeah. Okay, good boy. Good boy. Oh, look, he knows. He knows the camera's on. He's looking at the camera tonight. You want more? All right, I got to come back to you. I got to come back. So, guys, tell me honestly, the two-hander's better, right? Two-hander's better than one-hander because it's more compact. That's a big advantage. You can take more open stance, and it's more stable on the return of serve. Return of serve is at a premium nowadays. You've got to have a great return of serve, right? I mean, the, the compact nature of it helps the return of serve, right? My buddy Oscar Montañez is waving. 
thank you, Oscar. I think you've been on the program before. Thanks for joining our intelligent tennis community. I'm talking about the one-hander versus the two-hander right now. I was also talking about how I'm a hardware coach. Well, I should know the answer to this if one is better than the other. Guys, I think the two-hander is better. I'm just going to say it. it's better, but, but some kids love to hit a one-hander. I can't force those kids to hit two. That's just not right. But when you look at it, can you believe you, you know, these players, they close off their body. They step in, they close off their hips. They step across their body with a closed stance. And then they take this big loop, right? I mean, Brandon, Nick, the loops are big. How are they getting away with that considering the speed of the game? It's an interesting question. You know, I'm really, it's interesting to me. Like, I want to teach everyone a two-hand or a forehand. Is that nuts? It's a little nuts. Just try to think outside the box, people. I want to teach everyone a two-hander or a forehand. I want to teach two forehands. I'm going to have a player coming up soon who's going to do it. I know I am. I just need to get a parent who's crazy enough. I need a parent to give me the okay, like, to sign off. Say, Chris, go for it. Do it. Let's do two forehands. Do you see the guy in the Challenger Tour who's doing that? There's a dude on the Challenger circuit doing it right now. I posted his videos on some of the Facebook groups. There's a guy right now. He's got. He's like the mirror image. Basically, two, two Rafa forehands on both sides or two whatever, you know. Two set modern semi-Western forehands on both sides. All right, getting back to the one-hander. Brandon says... Vavrinka has a good return of serve. He just backs up 10 feet from the baseline. <laughs> I know, that, that's another big debate, where to stand on the baseline. It's a great return of serve debate, guys, getting into some tactics, you know. Oh, yeah, my friend Jeremy Malfay is watching. What's up, Jeremy? You're on the program, man. Sammy Madison is watching. I think that's my cousin or my niece. Or so. That's family. What's up, Sammy? All right, we got another Sammy on the program right here. Check it out. Sam boy, get in here. Oh, you're not happy? You want to go night-night? I think he's mad at me. Well, that's the other Sammy. He's on the program too. He looks mad at me. Sammy is so mad at me tonight. And he's so mad at me this winter. He's just got a permanent grudge against me because it's cold and he blames me. Like, it's my fault that it's cold. It's not my fault. Like, I didn't do it. I don't make the weather. But he doesn't have any hair, and he kind of blames me for... He blames me for the chill that he has every morning. And then he's just looking at me all the time like... He's like, dude, can you feed me some better food? Can you take me out on more walks? Can you take me out on more play dates? And I don't know what to do. It's freezing out. He doesn't even like to walk in the cold like that. But he's grumpy. He's mad at me. He's very irritable this winter, and I don't know what to do. I was going to bring him to the local, you know, there's a place called P.I. Paws where he can go and have, you know, kind of like doggy daycare. I was going to maybe sign him up for some doggy daycare because he's just, he's not happy. He's mad at me. Dude, don't look at me like that. Don't. He, he's looking at me with, with these real forlorn eyes. All right, Tim Treat is watching. We got all the regulars jumping on the program here. The program is heating up, even though it's a cold winter night in New York City. 
Frank Solana is watching. Thank you for waving. Brian Bleem is watching. Great. Got some new members of the program, some new viewers. I call it the High IQ Tennis Community Intelligent Conversation and Talk, especially about technique tonight, especially about technique. Jeremy said, what's up, man? Couldn't join you till now. Thank you, man. I've been teaching all, all weekend, 24 hours. You had it, you were playing? Cool. I'm beat, but I'm kind of pumped up for the program. I had a lot on my mind. Some nights I have a, nothing on my mind. Like my mind is like mush. There's just nothing going on there. And then some nights I have a lot on my mind. So there's a lot of tennis issues swimming around my brain tonight. Brandon says, so we're having this big debate about the one-hander versus the two-hander. Good topic for a debate, guys. It wasn't even on my agenda, but let's dig into it because it's interesting. In the future, one-handers could just play from farther back from the baseline and hit extreme heavy angles and height. Okay, well, Brandon, don't you think that court position is at a premium in the modern game? I mean, don't you hear that talked about a lot, how court position is so important? Vavrinka plays deep with the one-hander. How about Shapovalov? He plays pretty deep, doesn't he? Federer doesn't. He takes, he takes position very well. Tsitsipas. How about Tsitsipas? I have to watch him a little more. How's Tsitsipas's court position? Tsitsipas, I think, is kind of a mix. Like, he plays deep, and then he's able to take the ball early, too. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I have to watch a little more Tsitsipas. I have to check out his grip structure, too. Who else is a one-hander who plays deep? Like the way Guga used to do it? I just think it's wrong. It's not right. It's it's not a good it's not it's not a good biomechanical shot for the modern game. It's just not. It's too big. The backswing's too big. If there was a way to figure out how to make it like an ATP one-handed backhand backswing, it would be you'd kind of get me on board with it. You know, I would I would be pumped up about the one-hander for the 21st century. Let's say for the whole century, guys. I'm saying for the century, not just for the next 10 years or whatever. My buddy Gordon Paul's on the program. What's up, Gordon? Gordon, is that a doggy? You got a doggy on your profile? Nice. Maybe that's why you're tuning in. You want to see Sammy, not me. Sammy is very forlorn right now. He's mad at me because it's so cold. My buddy Ben Stern is watching. What's up, Ben? Thanks for waving, buddy. Guys, if you have any questions about tennis, tennis technique, Spanish tennis, junior development. That was another topic on my mind, guys. I wanted to talk a little junior, junior dev, where I just want to bust this myth about how it doesn't matter what your ranking is when you're young. Guys, honestly, that's a bunch of bullshit. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. It, it definitely matters what your ranking is when you're young. Okay, I don't want to hear that. Because that's a common myth, and it, it's, I hear it so much, I, I'm getting a little tired of it. My buddies on Payers and Players podcast, Scott and my other buddies, name slips my mind at the moment, sorry, sorry man, Scott and, it slipped my mind, but I'll remember in a moment. But it's a great podcast, Payers and Players. They did a whole segment on how it's 
I think they did a whole show on, on this topic where they, they sort of busted the myth, you know, and uh, it's Robert Garrett. I knew I'd remember Robert Garrett. So you got Scott and Robert. These guys are great. Guys, if you like podcasts, go check it out. Payers and Players, great podcast. And I've been watching all their stuff. They're really into junior dev, junior development, like me. So they did a whole show on how this is a myth, like how coaches will tell players and parents, oh, don't worry, you know, you're Johnny or Lisa, you know, Johnny or Lisa, not doing very well in the rankings, can't get into nationals. Don't worry, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? You hear that a lot. Just a bunch of bullshit, too. I mean, it is a marathon. It's not a sprint, but it's a sprint, too. It's both, let's be honest. Because if you can get a kid making money and making top ranking faster, I think it's better. I think you're a better coach, to be honest. If you can make, if you, what's our job after all, especially if you're doing serious development, like you're trying to get a kid to the top of the pros where they're trying to make a living, like a career, why not make more money? Get them to the top faster. If you can get a kid to the top at 17 or 18, rather than 21 or 22, it's more earning years. You know, that's how I see it. There's more years to make money. And I think you're a better coach if you can do it faster. So, yeah, it is. You got to have a long term perspective, but not too long. Right? Now, you should have a long term outlook, but not too long. Come on. I mean, if you, can, if you can get a kid to the top at 18 where they're making money, why wait till 22? You know, do it. Do it young, do it fast. So, I have a problem with that myth. And you hear that a lot. You hear that talk a lot. And the other thing is the 12s, you know, 12s ranking, 10s ranking, 14s ranking. Here coaches say it don't, it don't matter. I don't believe that. It, it matters. You got to be on the boat. You got to be on the boat. What I mean by that is you got to be somewhere near the top if you're going to make it. You got to be somewhere near the top of the country. You got to be on the radar screen. You can't be way off the chart. You can't be struggling down in sectional land and coaches telling you it's going to work out in the long run because it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And the coach is saying, hey, nobody cares about 12's ranking. Don't worry about it. And he's telling the parents, hey, don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. You know, remember, it's all about peaking for the 18's. You know, you hear that a lot too. I'm here to tell you guys, there's some truth to that, but it's mostly a bunch of shuck and jive. And you hear that from a lot of coaches who don't really know what they're doing, or they're not efficient. That's, the, that's really what it is. They're not efficient. They can't get a player there faster, or fast enough. And so they make excuses. It's basically excuse making. You know what I say about excuses? Excuse, excuses are... That's what losers do. Losers find an excuse. Winners find a way. And winners find a way to do it fast. Real fast. As fast as possible. I have a need for speed. I want to get a player to the top fast. Obviously not, not too fast because you, you don't want to rush it too much, but, but basically fast. If you can do it fast, I'm saying you're better. You're a better coach. You know? And you feel free to disagree with me if you'd like, guys. Let's see. I think Nick may disagree with me here, or maybe not. I'm not sure. Let's see. All right, we've got some comments on the board I will try to answer. This show is spicing up. Guys, everyone's tuning in. This show is starting to blow up. Let's see what we got here. Brian Bleem. I love that name, Brian Bleem. You got the alliteration going. 
He says, Hi, Chris. Is the Eastern backhand the only grip you can use to master the one-handed backhand? No, dude. No. Okay. I'm going to get my trusty racket. Hold on. I'm going. I'm, I'm mobile. I'm mobile. Chris is mobile. It's late Sunday night. I've been playing way too much tennis today, guys. I, I, I played so much tennis today. I can't believe it. My arm should be falling off. How am I doing this at my age, guys? Nick, I need you back. I need you back here hitting with me, Nick. You gotta hit. You gotta hit for me, man. I, I, I'm, I'm teaching too much. I'm, I'm playing too much. All right, I got my trusty racket. Can you guys see this? I'm gonna try to do this. All right, Brian. All right, so. Right. So what I'm talking about with the grip structure is basically, take a semi-western forehand. Right? Can you guys see that? It's a semi-western forehand. Now, just take it and flip it around to the other side. So I got my semi-western forehand grip, right? Now, bam, that's your backhand. So, that's the grip that I'm talking about for the one-hander that I think is more modern, quote-unquote. It's more cutting-edge. It's more next-gen, whatever descriptor you want to call it. I think that's the grip to go with. I've been working on it with a bunch of my students. I have a few one-handers right now in my stable, and they're doing it, and it's pretty cool. It's working out great. And maybe some of you guys are going to say, well, it's not going to work. It's going to be problem on low balls. I don't think so. I think I'm just going to get their asses down, and we're going to pick up low balls no problem. Could be an issue on fast courts, maybe. I don't. I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to be all right. But did you guys see that grip? Does anyone need to see that again? So, eastern backhand, I'm not as ecstatic about. I'm not as thrilled about that. The good old fashioned eastern backhand. The grip that team is using. I don't know. Nick studied with team. You know, is it Austria, Nick? Like Nick. Nick Wagner's been traveling there to study with Wolfgang, right, Nick? That's awesome, man. I have, I have a lot of respect for that. I have a lot of respect for coaches who travel and try to learn from the best minds out there. I'll tell you that much. So, Nick, what's team's grip, man? It's pretty, it's pretty conservative, right? Like, he's not very extreme, is he? Like, I, from what I saw, team is pretty classic. You know, I don't, I don't, I hate to say it, but Sorry to be a team basher, guys, but I'll just say it. I don't like his back end, you know. I know he's super strong. He's like an amazing athlete, and he, he does it. He does it really well, but I don't like his grip structure. I love his forehand. His forehand's so explosive, and, and it's whippy. You know, it has that elasticity that I like, and it has a nice parabolic shape that I like to teach to the young kids. But... The backhand just doesn't look right. It looks like a backhand from you know, 1985 with a modern, explosive, elastic forehand. I don't, I don't get it. You know, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know how he can. How is he winning on clay like that? He's such a good clay court player. Nick, how's he doing that? How's he doing that on? How does he get away with that? Like, why aren't guys killing him with high heavy stuff? How does he do that? And how is he able to survive on clay without? The grip to generate more spin, like he's not able to play real heavy off that back end, is he? 
You know what I'm saying? Maybe his just forehand's that good or his serve is so good. Maybe he's able to just get away with it. But I, I don't think it's ideal. Like, I'd take a Djokovic backhand over team backhand any day. Because, like I said, it's got, it's compact. It's better off the return. Can have better court position. You know, you can use the open stance better. I, I know a lot of the one-handers are doing open stance now. Team is amazing. He, he can do that stretched one-handed backhand like open stance off of off of different setups pretty amazing but maybe that's just because he's a great athlete like I wouldn't say it's a good model for the future I would just say it's sort of a like a one-off like like just just it's just something unique that he can do that it's it's not something I would want to I would not want to teach that backhand to a lot of my students and also he doesn't he doesn't finish a lot of times he 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 flares that finish across like pretty dramatically across you know instead of finishing a little bit higher which I definitely prefer like I like even Vavrinka doesn't do that like Vavrinka finishes a little bit with flare but I think the hand is is higher if you measure it compared to team like how's he doing that Nick how's he get away with that stuff All right Nick had a question about junior development can we get into the why the 12s ranking matters why the ranking for young kids matters. Like a lot of coaches say it don't, it don't matter, but it does matter. Nick says, in your opinion, is it better to do it the Macy and Williams way or have them grind it out in the juniors? Thanks, Nick. That's a great question. Obviously, both. They're both good. I wish more people would do the Williams way just to prove that it works because I don't think you have to do the junior grind the way some people think you have to do it that way. I think that that's a bunch of baloney. I would like to see more kids and families doing it in a healthy way with less, actually less competition, less chasing points, less doing the tournament grind. So does that help answer your question? It's a really good question. I think I'd like to see more families doing a variation of the Williams way, the pathway, where maybe they spend some holidays back home. You know, maybe they don't have to chase points every holiday and ruin, ruin the family dynamic. Maybe there's a healthier way to do it. I just think the, the, the junior grind is not for everyone. It's not for every family. And in many ways, it ruins a lot of families. And I don't think kids should have to chase points and, and, and grind that much. So that's my take on it. Feel free to post a follow-up, and I will comment. Katatoshi Shimizu is waving. Thank you, Katatoshi. I believe you are regular on the program. I appreciate you tuning in every Sunday. Steve Longley is waving. Steve, are you new, or are you a regular? I'm sorry, buddy. I don't remember. Brian Bleem says, thumbs up. Yeah, Brian, check out that grip structure that I'm talking about. Try it. Try it yourself, or try it with one of your players, maybe. It's really cool because you actually have no grip change. Saves you time on the return of serve, which I think is a little bit liability for the one-hander in general. And you can play real heavy. With that semi-Western one-hander, you can get more RPM. That's why I'm shocked that team can compete so well on clay because of his grip structure. How does he get heavy? How does he hit heavy with his backhand? With that grip, is he just like a miracle man? He can do it. 
He's just a genius. Maybe, maybe that's how he does it. Raphael Aravelo is watching. I almost said Raphael Nadal is watching. I was like, Rafa, you're on the show. This is amazing. All right. Nick Wagner says Vienna. Yeah, Nick's... Guys, talk about commitment. When you see coaches going to Europe, going to study with successful tour coaches, successful junior development coaches, trying to learn, I think that says a lot about a coach. It says a lot about their character. And it says a lot about their commitment to getting better. So kudos to you, Nick, for being a leader. Let's see. Jeremy Malfay says, My favorite one-handed backhand grip is with the index knuckle in between bevels 8 and 1. Oh, no. I'm going to fail my USPTA exam. Let's see. Bevel 8 and 1. No, man. Is, are you saying continental, dude? Are you saying towards the continent, like a continental? Or are you saying between bevel 8 and bevel 7? Because what I think I'm saying, if I remember my USPTA exam, and yes, I am USPTA certified. I hope I don't get into trouble. I believe what I'm saying is between bevel 7 and bevel 8. Or maybe even bevel seven, like a solid bevel seven. I think that's what I'm saying here. I hope I don't get into trouble with the USPTA. Am I saying that right? Bevel, I'm talking semi-Western forehand. Is a semi-Western forehand? That would be bevel. Okay, that would be one, two, three, four. So that's bevel four flipped around. So what I'm saying is bevel four, guys, Bevel four, forehand, and then you flip it over. Dudes, this is awesome. You flip it over. Come on. Guys, get on board with this. Not teaching teams backhand grip. I'm sorry. He's amazing, but I'm not teaching that grip structure. I'm not to my players. All right. Irma Maribel Bonilla is waving. I don't know. Jeremy knows his technique. He's an up-and-comer. He's a superstar. He's a future superstar coach. And he loves technique. His name's Jeremy. Malfay. Remember the name. Because if he's on this program, he's got to be smart. Nicholas Wagner says, Teams back and it's between Eastern and Continental. That's what I'm saying, man. That's what I'm saying, guys. It's, it's really close to Continental, man. Nobody has that grip anymore. Why did Wolfgang let him do that, Nick? That's what I would ask Wolfgang. I would say, Wolfgang. What's the deal? What's the dealio? All right. What else we got on the comments board here? Having a lively conversation. Guys, this is my Sunday night talk show. Talking tennis, talking junior dev, junior development, talking technique. One of my favorite subjects. Because I am a hardware guy. My heart is with hardware. And I want to be the go-to hardware coach in the world or at least in the US. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being a hardware coach. I know I can't say that in England nowadays because in England it's all about the cognitive, but I'm talking the motoric. I want to be that go-to coach for motor motor learning, motor training, hardware. I love hardware. That being said, I'm working really hard to develop my software side right now because I want to I be 
the best coach I can be. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the software side, the cognitive development, but my passion and my love, my heart is always going to be with hardware. And I think that's okay. Can somebody tell me that's okay? Because I don't want to feel guilty that I'm a hardware coach. Sometimes I'm, I'm working on hardware and I'm like, man, should I be working on hardware? And then I say to myself, yes, because you're a hardware coach. But then the part of me says, Chris, why can't you do a little more cognitive work? And I'll say, okay, all right, we'll do a little more cognitive work. We'll do some tactics and decision-making. But I love the hardware, guys. I love the hardware. All right. Brian Bleem says, Brian Bleem is blowing up the program tonight. He says, how about string preference and tension for a talented 11-year-old girl? Brian, you'll have to follow up and let me know, you know, what's, what's the physical capability and size of that girl 11 years old. And when you say talented, what are we talking about? Are we talking about like a sectional level, national level? What ranking are we talking about when we say talented? That would help me answer that. But basically, don't, don't use poly at that age. Don't do it, man. Don't succumb to the siren song of the poly. I say go multifilament. Go something soft. Go something soft. Teach that girl Spanish forehand the way I like it. You can still get good spin. Teach her modern ATP ground strokes. And do it with multi-filament. And then as she gets older, go with a hybrid, like a blend, poly and multi-filament. And then transition to poly. You know, that's, that's sort of how I, how I recommend it. And that, that's the way I've, I've advised other parents and coaches on it. That, that's my take on it, you know. Victor Manny or Mani is watching. Thank you, Victor. Appreciate you supporting the show. Faisal Hassan is waving. Thank you, Faisal. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. You definitely tune in to the right place because Faisal is a very intelligent coach. And this is the show for intelligent coaches and tennis fans. Yes, you have tuned into the right place. Jeremy Malfay says, no, the other side. Oh, Jeremy, are you saying that you like the same one-handed grip structure as me? Well, if we agree, then it has to be good has to be a good grip structure. We were saying how we like the... Is that bevel one? Did I just fail my USPTA exam again? That's not bevel one. That's bevel seven and eight. That's bevel seven, dude. That's bevel, that's bevel seven. We were saying how we like the semi-Western one-handed backhand as the, the grip structure for the future. And that is a bevel four... If I got my bevels right, that's a bevel four semi-western forehand, and you flip it over, you flip it over into the backhand for a one-hander. Guys, you know who does this right now, who has a two-hander, which is pretty rare and unique? Jack Sock. Watch Jack Sock. He's actually closer to a, I would say a bevel five forehand. Let's see, one, two, three, four... I would say he's closer to a Western bevel five, and then he flips that thing around, and he hits his two-hander with his knuckle on top like that. Very unique grip structure from Jack Sock. A very unique player with a lot of innovation. In my opinion, Jack Sock is very innovative. Some coaches look at Jack Sock and they say, ah, nah, it's, it's, aber it's an aberration, it's, no, it's not good. 
It's not, nothing I would ever teach to my players. And yeah, there's some of that on this forehand. The forehand's pretty wild. But what I see with Jack Sock is innovation. I see creativity. I see elasticity. I see massive whip. Hashtag whip. That's the name of my new forehand online course coming out. I'm going to plug that. Hashtag whip. You know, so when I see Jack Sock, I see innovation and whip. Massive whip. And I love whip. I love elasticity. So yeah, it's not perfect. I probably wouldn't teach all of the nuances of his forehand, for example. But it's a great shot and it's elastic. I love elasticity. Paolo Melgarejo is watching. He's a regular. Thanks for joining in, Paolo. Appreciate it. Throw up a comment or a question if you have one. We're having a lively show. I'm trying not to make it too lively because I'm chilling. Had a long weekend of teaching, a long weekend of grinding on the court. Let's see, we had a bunch of comments. I'll try to get to them. Jeremy says, you have failed the Griffiths. And no, no. I failed the USPTA grip exam? No, dude. Is this one on the top? Or is it zero? Is it zero on the top? It's one on the top. This is so embarrassing. You know, I don't, I don't think I can... I'm going to have to reduce my lesson rate for getting this wrong. It's one on the top. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, if it's not, it should be. I'm making a new, I'm making a new grip chart here. One is the top. I'm saying, I mean, who, who made that grip chart anyway? I'm making my own grip chart. I'm saying one is the top and seven is left of the top. There you go. From Chris Lewitt, new grip chart. Ugo Pigato is watching. Thank you, Ugo, for waving. I appreciate the waves. Appreciate it. I'm trying to chill, guys. Come on. Don't fire me up too much here. I'm trying to chill. I'm chilling tonight. I realize that here's what I realized. My Sunday show has to be a chilling show unless I get fired up. If I get fired up about a subject, I guess I will go with it. But I, it has to be a chill show because it's late Sunday night and I've been teaching 24 hours, man. It has to be chill or I'm just going to burn myself out. I have to chill a little bit, right? Okay. Nick says, I have a young... Nick, thanks for... Thanks for supporting the show tonight. You got a lot of intelligent questions here and comments. He says, I have a young girl now who plays very little tournaments but hits with my sparring partner every day and she is excelling faster and is much happier than a lot of tournament kids. She has a much more normal childhood, big fan of the Macy way, but it is really for only the families who truly believe long term and don't need to see rankings in order to monitor progress or success. Yes, so this would be one example or exception to what I was saying earlier in the show where I said the ranking really matters, the results really matter. I think with a kid like that, Nick, you're going to see results. They may not be results on the national rankings, but you're going to see results. Like she will play practice matches. I'm sure you have her playing practice matches and she can kick ass, right? So that's what I mean by results. She's going to beat players who are highly ranked in New England. She's going to beat players who are highly ranked in the country. And that's what I mean by results. It doesn't, of course, have to be the exact ranking. But the results have to be there at a young age. I, I think it's, it's not right. It's, it's a bunch of shuck and jive. It's a bunch of baloney when coaches say that 
the results at 12 don't matter. They matter. They matter because they, they tell you something. UTR is a good measurement too. UTR is a good way to measure progress too. They tell you whether a player is on track or not because to be a pro, and a lot of the data will bear this out, there's been some statistical studies of this that I think are, are fair and good, that if you're not on the boat in terms of having a top national ranking, you're not going pro. So Nick, the exception would be a player doing a, a training scenario that, that you're referring to. That would be the exception. That's the only way a kid can come out of left field and just turn pro or blow up the ITF junior circuit or show up at nationals somehow and win the whole thing. You know, those players are extremely rare and parents should not be banking that their kid is that, that good, that good, it's that kind of kid. It's, it's extreme, exceedingly rare. And I like what you're saying about having a healthy lifestyle. And that's what I think you get with the, with the Williams approach. You get a much healthier lifestyle. But it's not for every kid. The other thing is some kids are very social. Every kid is different, man. Every kid is different. And there's a different pathway for every kid. Some kids are really social and they like the junior circuit. They like meeting their friends. They like hanging out at tournaments. And for that type of kid, the Serena Williams, Venus Williams approach, the Macy approach is not so good. Because it's sort of cloistered. It's sort of too private. It's too lonely. Hitting with a coach every day is kind of lonely for those kids too. But for some kids, it's great. They love it. They don't even want to be in a group. I've talked about this a lot. Different personalities. You know, some kids don't even like groups. They don't, like, they don't want to socialize. The hell with that. They don't want to play with other kids. They don't want to talk to another kid. They're just like machines. They're, they're beasts. They're animals. And they just want to duke it out with a good sparring coach every day, one-on-one. -on -one. Like Monica Sellis, from what I've read about her junior story, she was like that. Dude, she was like that, Monica Sellis. I think Monica Sellis was the one where her dad would cover up the court. Like they would go to a private court. I think Boletari told this story in his book, amazing story. He said that... Sellers, her her dad was he was pretty he was nuts probably genius and nuts, and what he would do is he would cover up their court somehow like he would put some sort of tarp up so no one could see what they're working on and she would just work out with her private sparring coach one on one so all the other kids at the academy would be training and doing like normal groups and stuff and Monica would be there on her own private court. And it would be all tarped up somehow, like sort of covered, so no one could see what she was doing all day long. She would just be in her little bubble training. And, you know, that's an example of what Nick's talking about. That's kind of a Serena Venus Williams deal. And that works for some kids, but it doesn't work for others. If you do try to do that with some kids who are social, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate their life. So be careful about trying to make it one size fits all or trying to prescribe the right pathway and, and, and making it universal for all children because every child is different. Matthew Tanulanon is waving. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining our intelligent talk show. Jessica Frank Lewitt is waving. Hold on. I know that name. Wait a minute. That's family. What's up, Jess? How are you doing? How's the show going? Do you have a tennis question? Because that's all I got. I'm, I'm good at answering tennis questions. I don't have the, the answers to life. Not yet. 
maybe I have some wisdom on life, but I, I don't know. I think my tennis wisdom is notches above my life wisdom right now. Das Das is watching. Thanks for waving. Got a lot of regulars on the program. Thanks for joining in, guys. The show has been heating up. So Jeremy says, yeah, it's very similar to the semi-Western one-handed backhand grip. All right, I'm catching up with my comments here. All right, so I guess we're on board, Jeremy. We're on board together here, vamos. No, semi is bevel eight. No, dude, no. No, what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oops. Dang it, I miscounted. This is bullshit. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, man. Failed my USPTA exam. This is nonsense. So I guess there are eight bevels, guys. Dang it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, okay, I'm, I am a USDA high-performance coach, and I am the prodigy maker, but I don't know my bevels. The hell with it. So we're talking about bevel one and bevel eight. Is that what we're saying? Bevel one and bevel eight, Jeremy? <laughs> That's funny. All right. Brian Bleem says, LLL, you are correct, Chris. All right. Jeremy says there are eight bevels, not seven. Ha ha. All right, so are we saying my favorite new one-handed grip structure is bevel, is, is around bevel eight, right? But I was right about bevel four for the semi-western, right? Did I get that right? All right. Okay, let's see. We got some, uh, my Padel friends are back. What's up? Thanks for waving. I got some Padel fans on the program. I love Padel, by the way. Brian Bleem says... Coaching a high school team, only a couple of the kids are using a continental grip. Many can hit an okay serve using the forehand grip. Is it worth having them try to switch to continental? If they do it, train a whole lot in the offseason. Dude, change that. I would definitely change it. That's something I think is essential. Because you'd like to teach them some variety. You'd like to teach them maybe a slice serve. Maybe have some athletic kids who could learn a topspin serve. You know, I would probably start with a slice at that level. And the continental grip is going to give them more, more spin and, and maybe more power. That's, that's debatable whether you get more power with the continental versus a forehand grip. But, you know, I, I would probably make those changes, Brian. And it's going to be some work. The thing is they're going to hate it. Uh, you can't do it in season and you can't do it preseason. It, it's definitely a good out-of-season change so that that's my best recommendation there to you if you have a follow-up let me know i will do my best to answer let's see mark hansen's watching again mark you came back awesome i'm still here i usually go long distance here i'm like a spanish a spanish grinder <laughs> late on sunday nights i just talk just talk tennis until i'm about to pass out and then i go sleepy night night i think sammy's still mad at me sam are you okay are you mad at me? What, do you want to go out for a walk? He's so mad at me right now. Dude, come here. Give me some snugs. Sammy. Snuggy, snuggy. Snug, snug, snug. Snug, snug, snug. Say hi, everyone. Say hello. Hello. 
All right. What else we got on the board, guys? Anything interesting? God, does anyone want to disagree with me about something? I mean, can you want to fire me up here before I go to sleep? Does anyone disagree with me that the 12s ranking matters? All right, Nick says, To answer your question, if I remember correctly, Dominic used to have a two-handed backhand with an extreme left-hand grip and switched to a one-hander and kept the right-hand grip. That is very interesting, Nick. Makes sense, right? I think he should have stayed with a two-hander. <laughs> You know, that's, I don't know, maybe, maybe you no, know, I'm sure he's doing fine with the one-hander, but if that two-hander was good, oh, I'd love to see some video of that two-hander. That's like the videos of Sampras when he switched to a, to a one-hander from a two-hander. There's old videos, Landsdorp has some old videos of his two-hander. It wasn't that bad, but he had sort of a, yeah, it, it was probably a good change. You could see it looked like kind of a one-hander with the left hand tacked on. I wonder if, if Dominic Team's two-hander looked like that if it was kind of like a one-hander with the left hand tacked on you know where the arms were kind of fighting they weren't really flowing together that's an interesting question all right guys let me know if you have any follow-ups did anyone see my reality shows this weekend where we're on court do we have any questions about the show i thought we had some great lessons this weekend if you haven't checked them out go to my youtube channel it's youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt and you can see all of my shows we have all of my reality shows on there a lot of them are live on court I don't know anyone who's doing live on court lessons every week right now unscripted unedited live lessons on the court I think it's really fun and the coolest thing about it is my students are having a blast my students are all asking to be on the show they're all asking to be on the YouTube channel they want to be rock stars, and I think that's cool. So not only is it cool to share my coaching methodology and my coaching style on the court and my philosophy, but I think it's also cool that I get to feature my students, and they get to have a chance to feel the pressure of having the camera on them. You know, it, it's not easy sometimes to perform when the camera's on you, so they get to have that experience, and they also get some celebrity status. They get to be famous on YouTube, at least briefly, for their short moment in the, in the spotlight. And sometimes they get their friends to watch them. And sometimes they have a kind of a cheering club watching. I think it's so cool that my students are getting involved and excited about the reality show and, and the filming that we're doing. So I think that's really cool. And I think it's cool that coaches are watching. Coaches are watching and learning from those shows. Parents are watching and using some of the techniques with their kids. It's great. That's awesome. That's why I'm doing it. I'm also doing it to showcase my methodology, my technical method especially, because I think what we do with technique on the court is, is relatively unique and innovative. I think we're, I'm innovating on the court and I want people to learn about it. I want to show it off to a certain extent. You know, we're, we're trying to without being, without losing my humility, I, I want to show off some of the innovative stuff that I'm doing with my players because I think it's unique and cool, but also when I post all that stuff, I get feedback. You know, I have coaches who say it's crazy. I have coaches who say that's cool. Why don't you try this? Have you ever tried this? What do you think about this? And so I actually become a 
a better coach, I think, in the long run. I become a much better coach because I'm getting feedback on my work all the time rather than teaching in a bubble. Because if you teach in a bubble where you're the boss or you're the head honcho and you never get feedback or criticism, I think you lose something. Your, your system, your method never gets challenged and sometimes you don't grow as a coach. So I'm, what I'm finding is by, by starting this channel and, and featuring my live coaching, I'm helping myself grow as a coach and develop. So it's challenging me to be a better coach, making me think about what I'm doing. Sometimes I can watch my own lessons and learn as well. So that's also another way you can learn by watching yourself. And many times we don't have a chance to watch ourselves on court. So I don't want to sound like a, a narcissist, but sometimes I'm able to watch some of my clips and I'm like, wow, that looks good. Or no, I don't like that. Or Oh, I didn't realize how it looked like that, you know, and, and you can learn and develop that way as a coach. So I think it's very good, very educational and uh, for, for others and also for me as well. All right, we have a few comments on the board. I feel like I may need to take a nighty-night soon, sleep at night-night time. I might give Sammy some tummy rubs and then head upstairs to bed, but I want to answer a few more questions first. Sammy, what do you think? Should we go night night or answer a few more questions? Oh. Okay. I'm sorry it's so chilly. I'm sorry it's so chilly out. I'm going to get you a blanket. Okay? I'll get you a blanket. All right. Guys, let's check out a few more questions here. Nut or nut. Nguyen Duck is waving. Thank you. Thank you for waving. Scott Growth is back. Thanks, man. I'm still going here. Brian Bleem says, Brian is blowing up the show tonight. Do you know how common or realistic it is for the USDA to provide money to redo a court owned by a tennis and swim club? Yeah, I actually do know that because I am a club owner and I have looked into that. There are some, at least last I checked, some good scholarship programs for clubs who want to renovate their courts, especially if they want to put down the... whatever you want to call it, quick start lines or the 60-foot lines. So, yeah, there's actually some discount programs for that. I believe they're still active. you got just got to go to the USDA website and check it out. Happy to advise you on that. I know that some of the – I looked into it, and if you put down the mini tennis lines or the, the marks for the 60-foot court, the orange court lines, USDA – will pay for a certain percentage of the court development. So that's pretty cool. And I would definitely recommend doing that. All right, guys, any more technical questions? Let's see, what else was on my mind tonight? Hardware versus software. 12's junior development. Man, something else was burning me up. Guys, is it wrong? Tell me, is it wrong? To do a lesson, let's say a private lesson, and just do technique. Because sometimes I do that, and I sort of feel guilty, but I don't. I feel on, on, on one side of me, I have this schizophrenia. On one side of me, I feel kind of sad. I'm like, oh man, we didn't play, I didn't have any fun, or quote-unquote fun, with this player. 
But on the other hand, I'm thinking to myself, I got so much technical reps in. I got so much work done. This kid's going to thank me later. You know, they're going to send me the thank you card later. It could have been more fun, but they're going to have a huge advantage in terms of their skill development. Sometimes I think that, and I have that debate in my own mind. Like this morning, tell me, is this, is this wrong? I was doing, you know, I'm a hardware coach. I'm going to say it again. I want to be the go-to guy for hardware. Hardware is in my heart. So I had a lesson this morning, and I wanted to work on hardware. I wanted to work on technique, and the kid wasn't really into it. I'm not going to name names this time. But he wasn't really into it. And I said, dude, come on, man. Let, let's work on this. Let's do this. And he said, well, can we rally? Can we play some points? And I, and I just put my foot down. I was like, no. You know, that, and some people would say, that's so mean, Chris. How could you do that? You just said, no, the kid wants to play points. And you said, no. Well, we played points the last week. And I said, dude, this week, I want to work on hardware. I want to get some skills going. And I put my foot down. And he wasn't really a super happy camper, but, you know, that's my job as a coach. My job is to sort of guide the player and, and, and try to, ultimately, I got to get those skills in. So when I see a player who can do the reps, who's willing to do the reps, I want to take advantage of that. I want to get those skills in there as, as best I can. And I guess, you know, the game-based guys are going to flame me for that. They're just going to trash me for that and tell me that I'm a bad coach, I'm a bad person. And I, I think that's unfair because there are some kids who like to drill. There are some kids who, like this morning, who, who want to play, but they're willing to drill. And I think it's my job is to teach that player discipline, to teach that player discipline, to teach them skills that other coaches might not teach them because they're always playing games all the time or they're playing games a lot of the time or they're trying to work on cognitive aspects. I like to work on cognitive aspects, but I really want to get the hardware. I like the software. Whenever I can work on software, I will, but I really need, I feel like my duty and responsibility is hardware development, which means strokes, which means footwork, which means motoric training. So that's, that's what I've been sort of debating in my mind. I, I feel sort of guilty when I force a kid, and I mean force, I mean teach discipline, you know, come on feel a little guilty about that. Here's another thing that's on my mind. When you do cognitive training, like there's, it's really in vogue right now, cognitive training, tactical training, <clears throat> emotional training. When you do that type of work, let's say first, first four shots training and you're focusing on tactical decision making because first four is such a big thing right now. When you do that, it's not a tough workout. Here are some of the criticisms that I have of cognitive training, software training. It's not a tough workout. That's number one. There's too much stopping and talking. When you're working on tactics, when you're working on decision making, when you're working on cognitive aspects, there's too much talking. It's not a brutal workout. You can't make a kid suffer if you're always stopping and talking about tactics and stuff like that, or talking about emotions and mindset. And I, I like talking about that stuff, but it's not the right place to do it if you're trying to make a kid suffer. If you're trying to make a kid, if you're trying to torture a kid and put them through a lot of pain and pressure, 
if you're trying to apply the pressure cooker to a kid, it's, it's just not the right format for that type of lesson, in, in my opinion. The other thing is it's not physical enough. When you're working on cognitive and tactical stuff, there's too much stopping. So the kid's not getting as good a workout. He's not getting as strong a workout. There's, you can't keep the heart rate as high for as long. So that's another criticism that I have of tactical cognitive training. Tactical cognitive training that is, is focusing on decision making, you're not getting that physical grind. You're not getting the heart rate elevated for long enough. The other problem that I have with working on, especially the first four shots, this is the same argument that I have against first four shots training. If you do too much first four shots, one of the issues if you do that is you develop kids with a short attention span. You develop kids who want to pull the trigger all the time. You develop kids that are obsessed with, they are obsessed with first strike. And I believe that young kids should learn to concentrate. They should learn to develop patience. That's an important word for me, patience. In general, they should learn to extend their attention span. They should learn to lengthen their concentration. And when you're working on first strike, when you're working on first four shots, tactical decision-making, that's it. You know, the point is over. Bam, 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 point's over. S1, you know, S, S1, R, R1, over. And then you talk about the decision. That type of lesson, I'm not saying it's a bad lesson. I, I like that type of lesson, but only if the kid is a beast already, a physical beast, very disciplined, very good concentration, very good stamina, and what was the other one? Yeah, that's basically it. You got to have like the physical qualities, stamina, mental qualities of, of willing to suffer, you know, and patience. You got to have that. When I have a player who's patient, physical stamina, will, and, and a mental capacity to suffer, willingness to suffer, then I think working in that type of shot range is fine. It's fine. And, it, and it'll be, it'll be, it won't be detrimental to the player. They have, a good attention, they, have a, they have to have a good attention span, too. But when you talk about with a lot of young kids, a lot of kids don't have those qualities. A lot of young kids have short attention spans. They have low stamina. They have poor patience. They're, they haven't learned to suffer. They haven't learned to be a beast in training yet. And when you take kids like that, and there are a lot of kids like that. I see tons of kids like that. A lot of parents hire me to teach those qualities to young kids. So when you take kids like that and you teach them or you immerse them in a games-based or game-based tactical decision-making system or you immerse them in a first four cognitive training system that's very in vogue right now, very popular right now with a lot of tactical coaches. So when tactical coaches take those kids and put them in that environment, 
They're doing them a disservice at that age and that level. In my opinion, they're doing them a disservice because what, what I would prefer to get into those kids, into their character, is the suffering, the willingness to suffer, maybe even loving to suffer, is the mindset of patience, the mindset of concentration, good concentration. And I want to see a physical beast. I want to develop that kid into a physical beast. And you just can't do that with tactical lessons because there's just too much interruption. There's too much talk. And there is a time for talking. I'm not saying never talk, never do tactical. I'm not saying never do cognitive training. But with a young kid, I'm saying don't do it too much. Get the physical side in. Get the concentration in. Develop the beast. Develop the animal. You know, develop the disciplina. Develop the discipline. And then I'm much more comfortable working in the cognitive first four shots realm. And that's my opinion. That, that's how I really like to do it. That's why I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand how game-based approach is, is the best for high performance. I, I just don't, I guess I don't believe it. I don't see it. I, I'm, I have yet to be persuaded that it's better for high performance. I'm, I'm easily persuaded that it's better for fun and recreational tennis, but not for high performance. You know, because I think young kids need to learn those qualities that I mentioned before moving on to a lot of technical cognitive work. I, I prefer to do it that way. Or you can do a little bit together. You can do some of it together in a hybrid fashion, but not too much. Because if you do too much cognitive, it's going to be a lot of talking, a lot of in interruptions. You know, you're not, you're not going to be able to push the kid physically. So what a lot of tactical coaches will say is, well, if you don't put them in the game environment, they're not experiencing pressure. And I think that's interesting, that argument. And there, there is some truth to that. They're not experiencing the match simulation pressure. But on the other hand, they are experiencing significant pressure from me, from the coach. They are experiencing a lot of pressure because I'm forcing them to do something that they don't like. Or they may be experiencing a lot of pressure because I'm yelling at them. Or maybe I'm giving them some sort of physical punishment. I don't want to sound like a crazy person, but I'm, I'm serious now. You know, as a coach, as a taskmaster, this is where you get into the drill sergeant side of things. This is where you get into my, my military family background. You know, when you're pushing a kid and you're being a drill sergeant and you're punishing them with a physical drill that has no, even if it has no tactical component, that player is feeling pressure. It's a different kind of pressure. It's the Robert Lansdorp type pressure. And I would submit to you guys and anyone who's watching that when you apply that type of pressure to a young kid, that pressure makes diamonds. It makes a tough warrior. It builds a warrior mentality. It, you create a beast, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons why Lansdorp is so successful. Not necessarily because the technique that he's teaching is so cutting edge, because it's not. You know, it's pretty old school stuff. But what he's doing in terms of applying pressure to those young kids, 
maybe even too much. Like some people say he's sort of borderline abusive. And I'm not talking about being abusive. I'm talking about pressure and teaching discipline. And if you can teach that to a young kid, it's something that's very special. It goes into their character and they have it for life. And that's something that Lansdorp does very well. And there's some other coaches like Rick Macy. I've, I've observed him do that very well. And I'm sure other junior developers are doing that, but it's a lost art because so many coaches nowadays are namby-pamby, which is a great word, namby-pamby. A lot of coaches nowadays are soft. A lot of coaches nowadays are coddling. A lot of coaches nowadays try to make everything fun. A lot of coaches nowadays let the kid run the show. Basically, the kid is, is determining what the lesson is going to be like. And to me, that's a recipe for disaster. And to me, that ties in very closely with the GBA, games-based approach. They're tied together. They're sort of like brother and sister. Because the coaches who are all like that, they like to play games. Because games make it more fun. And then what they do is they justify the games playing by saying that, well, we need to work in the cognitive realm. We need to work in the tactical realm because we're going to make our kids smarter. But you're losing all the other benefits that I talked about. You're losing the stamina. You're losing the concentration. You're losing the discipline. You're losing the beast mentality. You're losing the willingness to suffer. You're losing a lot of those important character attributes that tough drilling and traditional style training develops. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And I, I feel very passionately about this is that drills, tough drills make a kid strong. They make a kid tough. That's why they're called tough drills. And they build character. And also the way you talk to a kid builds character. You know, you don't always have to talk to a kid in a nice way. You can be mean sometimes. You can be tough sometimes. You can be... You know, I don't like to be demeaning. When I say mean, I don't mean demean. I don't mean demean. I don't, I don't like to devalue kids. I don't like that type of approach. But you can be very stern sometimes with a kid. You can yell at a kid. You can yell at a kid and it doesn't have to be always negative. It can be a positive. You can be yelling at a kid and applying some sort of positive pressure to them. And you can create anxiety in them and they need to produce a shot or hit a target when they're feeling some stress. And I think that's very valuable. That is a very valuable environment to create for a young kid. It's not what you're going to create at a country club because the country club environment is about making it fun and relaxing. And what I'm talking about is making an environment that's stressful and that's anxiety producing. And then asking a player to perform under that pressure. And I think it's a lost art. I don't think coaches do that anymore. Most coaches don't do that anymore. And I think it's particularly a lost art if you practice the game-based approach. If you practice, if you're an adherent or if you're a, a, if you espouse a tactical cognitive approach to training young kids, you are losing out on that tough character building side of the, of the, of the development. 
And, and I just don't think there's any way around that. You're missing out. And among other things, I mentioned the other qualities that you're, you're probably not developing. But, but I wanted to address that because you see a lot of first four tactical recommendations now. You see a lot of first strike tactical recommendations. And I don't want coaches to lose the old, good old-fashioned style of tough drilling and also, part of that is making drills long sometimes. So that, that's the Spanish way. So you make, a, you make a player suffer with long, extensive training. And I don't want coaches to forget that, yeah, it's great to work on a young kid's cognitive mind. It's great to work on a young kid's emotions and mindset. It's great to work on a young kid's tactical decision-making, but don't forget the good old-fashioned discipline. Don't forget to teach character. Don't forget to put a kid in under real pressure, which is the pressure of a tough environment. Not just the pressure of a point, because there, that, is, that is valuable pressure, but the pressure of stress. You know, put, put stress on a player. And a lot of coaches ha don't do that anymore because we're taught in many of the coaching courses like USPTA, PTR, and all, all over the place. We're taught to create environments that are not stressful because we want the kids to have fun. And I think that's a mistake. All right. So those are some of my comments tonight. Brian Bleem says, thanks, Chris. Lots of good points tonight. Love the honesty. Yeah, we're trying to, you know, I'm a straight shooter. And I believe in not stirring the pot just to stir it, but trying to call things the way it is, call things the way they are, and also to remind coaches who are out there of what it really means to train a kid for high performance. And I think that, especially with GBA and cognitive tactical training, we don't want to lose sight of the benefits of some of the traditional approaches, and especially long drills and long rallies. And I, I want coaches to sort of find a balance, to find a middle road. I'm a big believer in finding a middle road. So I'm not saying GBA is bad, all bad. I'm not saying tactical cognitive work is also all bad, because I believe in that stuff. I, I use that stuff all the time. But I'm saying don't forget about the other stuff. The traditional drilling, the discipline, the long rallies, the grinding, that stuff builds character too. That stuff, that stuff builds a player. That can build a champion. I, like many things in life, I think there's a middle road. And I think that the people who say everything should be tactical, those coaches are way off. And the coaches who say everything is technical, everything should be drilling, those coaches are off too. There's a middle road. And the art of coaching is finding the balance for each player, finding the right mix, finding the right blend for the kid in front of you. But people shouldn't forget the Lansdorp way. They shouldn't forget that style because there's a lot of, there's a lot of value in putting stress and pressure on a, on a little kid and then making them hit a shot over and over to a target. Making them do that. And it's not fun. And it's not entertaining. It's not relaxing. You know? 
But it's so good for a young kid to learn that. If, if you want to build champions, and that's what I'm about. I like to build champions. I'm not talking about building up the popularity of your kids' classes at your club. I'm talking about building champions, high-performance training. So we can't forget that, those lessons, you know. At the same time, if you have a little kid, take for example, you have a little kid and they're 12 or 13 and you've been drilling the shit out of them and they're tough as nails and they have stamina and they have discipline, disciplina, and they work like an animal. Awesome. That's great stuff. But if you haven't mentioned a single cognitive tactical thing to that kid and they're 12 or 13, I think you've done a disservice to your player. There's got to be time and place for talking about decision making and talking about how to play the game because it is a game that has to be played, right? At, at the end of the day, that's what all the GBA folks say. You want both. That's what I'm arguing. You want both of those qualities. At the end of the day, you do your player a disservice if you've drilled the shit out of them. They're tough as nails. They have great concentration. They have a great work ethic, but they don't have a clue about how to build a point, how to structure a rally, and then how to attack or how to defend. They don't understand tactical decision-making or court position or things like that, how to disturb a player. If they don't understand any of those nuances, I think you, you've sort of, it's not too late. You can still teach those things at 12, 13, 14. You can still catch up, but you probably didn't do it in the most efficient way, and you probably did that player somewhat of a disservice, although you will have one tough SOB there, which I like. But why not have a tough SOB who's also smart and tactical? I say, let's do both, middle road. All right, I'm going to leave you guys with that thought. I see a lot of my buddies tuned in. Jim Kane is watching. My friend Peter Banyas is watching. Thanks for waving, buddy. I appreciate it. Got some, it's nice to see friends on the Sunday night program. All right, I'm going to start closing up, guys. I want to say thank you all for supporting the show. Guys, support the show and subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. That's our big channel with all our shows. Please subscribe. We're trying to build up our community there. And watch our videos there. You know, you might learn something. And I would like to say, give this a big thumbs up if you like what I had to say tonight. And if you don't like it, too bad. It's my show. I get to say what I want. I had a lot of fun. I learned from you guys. I appreciate all the comments tonight. We had some really intelligent commentary. And we had some really good coaches sharing their opinions tonight. That's awesome. That's what the show is all about as well. We're trying to build up this intelligent community with intelligent discussion. So thank you guys. Let's see what's happening on the agenda. I have a big workshop coming up February 18th and 19th. So I'll just remind you of that. I'll kind of plug that for a moment. It is called Advanced Technical Development and Prodigy Building. Very cool title, if I might say. It's a two-day workshop for high-performance training for coaches and parents, and it features technical training, my technical system and methodology, and also my experience working with young prodigies and how to train prodigies. 
really talented young kids. So I think it's going to be a fascinating workshop that's on the horizon, February 18th and 19th. That's in Vermont at my club in Vermont on uh, the northeastern United States. And what else is on the horizon? We've got some really exciting stuff coming up with the YouTube show. So stay tuned. The, the show is going to be getting better and better. I'm going to be training this spring, and we're going to try to document my training as I get ready for some ITF Pro Circuit events. I can't call it the Pro Circuit anymore. I'm going to have to call it the World Tour. It's no longer the Pro Circuit. I'm so bummed. And I might play some money tournaments this summer, so we're going to document some of my training, which I think will be fun. And also, when we get into the summertime, as the summer rolls around, we're going to be filming a lot at the summer camp, so you guys will get a sneak peek, uh, an inside look at my camp operation, how I run my groups there, and this, the methodology that we're using. We run a very Spanish system during my summer camp. It's going to be really cool. I think everyone's going to love it. And what else? Maybe some more insight into my life and my, my work and my career. I'm going to try to maybe do some off-court filming this year on the, on the reality show, on the YouTube reality show. So we got some interesting stuff coming up. I hope to see you guys at the next workshop. See you guys at the next show. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing, guys. Oh, I got some buddies tuning in. Thank you, guys. I'm just wrapping up. Sorry. Have to catch the replay. If you have any comments from the replay, let me know. I check all the comments later tonight or tomorrow. And I will be posting my thoughts on the comments section of the, of the YouTube post. So thank you, guys. Have a good night. God bless. Have a great week of coaching if you're teaching out there. And remember to give your students your absolute best. Come on. Also, learn from your students. It's not a one-way street. We don't know everything, guys. A lot of times, your students may know more than you. You want to try to learn from them. Also, parents. A lot of times, parents know more than us. Try to learn from your parents, guys. Don't have that negative outlook of regarding the parents. Learn from your parents. Learn from your students. That's my final thought for the night. Guys, God bless, have a good night, and I'll see you on the next program. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find archives of all Chris's shows at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt, or search Chris Lewitt on YouTube. You can watch the live video broadcast of this program weekly on Sunday nights, where you can ask questions and comment in real time on Facebook Live. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the live show. Please share our programs with friends, and join our online community. You can join Chris Lewitt's Online Tennis Academy at clta.teachable.com or visit chrislewitt.com for more info. Chris's latest published articles and additional video resources can be found at prodigymaker.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.